Coming to you live from the Dungeon of Sticky Floors, it's the Dockiverse Podcast. Episode 78, He Was Searching for a Danger Girl. In this episode, we've got RPG prompts, a three-box problem, and commentary. And now, let's start the show. Hello there, gentle listeners. Welcome back to the podcast. It is I, your host, Doc Cross, and I hope everybody had a good week. I did. We had some gaming get in there and some other things. Everything's going all right. If the podcast today sounds a little different than usual, it's because I'm using my microphone without any sort of pop screen or anything in front of it. The setup I'm having to use today precludes doing a lot of that stuff. So I hope I don't sound too bad. hope you don't hear too many odd noises. I just want to tell everyone that I have, in fact, started doing reviews to put on the podcast. I've got two of them done. They will probably start up in another couple of weeks. I'm not sure. What I am sure about is my wonderful, wonderful Patreon backers, who send me money, and I do a podcast and a blog. By the way, I'll be talking about that blog in commentary. So anyway, thank you, Jame. Thank you, Marion. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, David. Thank you, Avis. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Bruce. And thank you, Kevin. You guys are swell, and I hope you like the show. So now we get on to RPG prompts, and we've got three kind of unusual ones here. The first one is obtuse, and obtuse applies to both players and characters, and yes, the GMs too. There are times when GMs just do not see what's right there in front of them. For players, it's often a big problem because they will see something, and just not recognize it for what the GM is trying to make them know it is. And the GM will have to eventually just kind of drop it on top of them and say, look, here's the thing. And then they'll go, oh, there's the thing. Yeah, so that happens. Sometimes it's the characters who are obtuse, and that's usually because they have to be, because of the way they're being played or the way they're set up. And they're young or they're from the country or whatever from the city and they're out in the country and there's just things they don't understand and that's a part of role playing and the players hopefully know to play them that way often obtuse characters are NPCs who the GM is playing and he'll do that so that the characters and the players have to coax information out of them and explain things to them so that they understand. And sometimes you have the deliberately obtuse NPCs. This is very often bureaucrats and politicians who just don't want to recognize that something's going on, so they just act stupid about it. Uh, No, we don't want to know that there's a vampire infestation in our uh, sewers. No, 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 everything's fine. Everybody enjoy the festival. You know, it's just like the mayor in Jaws. He knew what was going on. He remained stupid. So that's obtuse. 
our next RPG prompt is Revelation. And fantasy games and really almost every genre has some big revelation in it. Maybe it's not a huge revelation, but it's something that, you know, suddenly enlightens everyone. Um, One of the things that happens in fantasy especially is that a wizard or someone will reveal something to them. And, you know, it's right out of Luke, I am your father, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, So revelations play a good part in moving things along, especially if they come at a really good dramatic point, and that's up to the GM to figure out. Sometimes you'll have revelations occur early on uh, in a pulp game or something where it will be revealed that, oh, crap, what he's building is a nuclear weapon in 1930. Or, oh no, this guy's potion that he's making, this evil mad scientist, that's going to revive the dead. And maybe they also get the revelation that it's not going to stop reviving the dead at the first guy he does. That guy will go out and he'll be spreading some sort of disease or whatever in the air and he'll start raising dead all over the place. So, Yeah, revelations can come that way by them finding things out. It can also come from them going somewhere to seek an answer to something, and then the answer is revealed, and it could be a small, simple thing like, you know, your mother did not hate you when she died. Don't think that. You know, your family is safe. Don't worry about that. Or it can be something like, you're the son of a god, or... You're going to prevent the end of the world. And then you can build a whole campaign around them trying to figure out how the hell they prevent the end of the world because they don't even know how the world's going to end. They don't know what's going on. So they have to keep on searching for things. And, of course, they'll get other revelations. Our third and final RPG prompt for today is Automaton. Now, in fantasy, automatons are basically golems. Somebody makes a golem, they tell it what to do, and it does it. You know, protect this area, uh, turn that big crank to power my arcane machine, something like that. If you move into other genres, of course you have the Frankenstein monster, who would be a flesh golem in D&D. But you also have automatons where they are actual, actual machines that look like people or other races, you know, other creatures. Um, I once had a steampunk game where they came over a hill to look down upon his army, and the army was enormous. And it was going through all of its paces and drills perfectly. And they even saw guys with war dogs that they were putting through their paces perfectly. And they were, you know, losing their shit, because, oh, God, look at the size of this army. There must be 50,000 guys there. And there's more up where we can't see them. But, Jesus, that's like, you know, 75,000-person army. Well, it wasn't. It was only a 25,000-person army, and the 50,000 they were looking at, including the dogs, were all automatons programmed to go through the motions that they were doing. To make anybody spying on them, which the evil overlord expected, Think, oh Christ, it's a huge army. Maybe we should start peace negotiations or just let these guys take over without killing a bunch of people. 
fortunately, one of the people in the group made a very, very good you know, observation, perception role, whatever, I forget what it was in the system we used. But she realized, hey, you know, they're a little too perfect. She goes, and they keep going through exactly the same thing. And that doesn't usually happen in armies. You go through the first drill, and then you do a different drill, and then you do another drill. But these guys are just doing one drill. And so are the dogs. And that's completely not real. So then they snuck down, middle of the night, got to this place, looked around, and sure enough, they found a guard who was not really a guard. He was an automaton. And all he was made to do is pace back and forth, you know, 100 feet in either direction. He didn't pay any attention to them. They did see real dogs just a few moments later who did pay attention to him, but they realized this, half this army, more than half this army, is just automatons, and they're not going to be able to do anything unless it's actually built into them. So there you go with automatons. You can have them in pulp. You can have them modern day. They're not automatons, of course. By now, they would be androids or robots. Still, robots have limitations. Androids, at least in the modern era, would have limitations, and they probably wouldn't look really like humans up close. And even if they did look fairly like humans from a not very far distance, when you got up close to them, boom, uncanny valley. Yep, that's an automaton. That's a robot. That's something. I think automatons should be used a little more in uh, different genres. I think in fantasy, we should use fewer golems and more automatons. Uh, The automaton could be magically enhanced to cast a single spell or to recognize that anybody that's not, you know, a certain select group of people is an enemy, cast a spell at them. Now, automatons are usually fairly easy to destroy unless they're made out of steel or something. But they're useful, and I hope GMs start using them more in their various games. And that is RPG prompts for this episode. We'll have more in two weeks. Now we move on to our three-box problem. And remember, this is a three-box pulp problem. And what I pulled out of the three boxes were Vanished Girl... Strange Weapon, Drowning Town. So, let's look at each of those individually. First, you've got a girl who's vanished. Now, you could have her just be gone. She wasn't in her bed in the morning. And you could have her actually just be kidnapped. Or, you could have her vanish in front of a bunch of people. Maybe she was teleported away. Maybe she was made invisible, and then some invisible guys drug her off. Uh, Maybe she was actually destroyed in some way. Although, probably not that. So, you have this girl, and she's vanished, and somebody's looking for her. Her parents, whoever. Now we go on to the strange weapon. Well, in pulp, strange weapons are everywhere. So you can decide what this strange weapon is, and what it does... In this case, we're going to say that the vanished girl was the daughter of a famous scientist. And the strange weapon is something that causes earthquakes. 
That brings us to the drowning town. And this can be a town that's somewhere that normally doesn't have earthquakes, and there was an earthquake, and a dam is now leaking, and the town is being flooded, and because of how it's situated in this valley, and because at the other end of the valley there was a big rock slide, this town is going to be inundated and covered up with water unless somebody can repair the damage and stop the weapon. Now, why is this town being targeted? Well, could be just as an example. Look what I've done to that town. I will do it to your cities if you don't give me millions of dollars. Or you could have the bad guy has a grudge against somebody in a town. Possibly the scientist who invented the earthquake machine, which this guy stole. Uh, your characters come into town to find out about this vanished girl. Maybe they were told she vanished by her brother or her best friend or somebody got in touch with them, the way they used to always do with Doc Savage. Come to his New York uh, building in his office and say, Please, Doc, you got to help me. You know, my brother has been kidnapped by, you know, whoever. But by whatever means, your characters have been brought to this town to look into this girl who vanished and this strange earthquake and find out what's going on. So they've got a mystery. They've got to figure out how to repair that dam or at least, you know, help get the guys in who can fix the dam. And they got to find out what this scientist has to do with this and what the evil bad guy, who he might be or what he might be. Maybe he's something strange. So anyway, that is a three-box problem for this episode, and we will have another three-box pulp problem in two weeks. Okay, now we move on to commentary, and this time the commentary is very much linked to this podcast and the blog. As I've said before on here, and as my good-looking and generous patrons know, I've been doing another Doclopedia Death March. And I've been doing it a week's worth at a time, posting it on Patreon so they can read them. And then a month later, which has already happened because this is April, I start posting them on my blog. First off, for those of you who haven't heard of it before, a Doclopedia Death March is basically where I choose either a period of time or a number of um, entries, and I do Doclopedia entries for that length of time or until I reach that number. I believe the first one I did was, in fact, 365 days, 365 entries, and that's what I did. The next one I know was 365 days, 500 entries. I did that. Then there was 365 days, two entries a day. That's the last one I did. That started on September 1st of 2019 and ended on August 31st of 2020. And I did two posts a day, every day throughout the year. And in fact, I actually did two extra posts. So it was like 700-odd posts there. So I'm doing another one. And I decided this limitation I would put on myself would be that I would do the way I used to do Docopedia entries, which is seven entries over seven days. But in this case, 
I'm also posting them on Patreon where they get all seven entries for that week at once. So this means I have to do seven entries for seven days. And because I want to get ahead of the curve, in case something happens and I can't write for a week or so, I'll have plenty done up. And also so that when the stuff starts going up on a blog, the Patreon folks are still ahead by a month. So that's how it works, which means that over the course of the next 365 days, I'll do 365 posts, except we also move into the how long am I going to do it, and how long I'm going to do it is going to be more than a year. I turned 68 back on the end of January, and I will turn 70 at the end of January 2024. So I said to myself, you know what? I'm just going to keep doing this, these weekly posts, this Wikipedia Death March, one post a day until I turn 70. So the last one I do will be January 29th, 2024. So I've told you all this to explain what the Wikipedia Death Marches are, but why do I do them and how do I do them? Well, that's the part we're going to talk about. The why is very simple. I started doing the very first one because I was not doing a Doclopedia entry on the blog. I wasn't sometimes writing anything on the blog for a while. And I decided, no, I need more discipline. I need to write every day. So I thought, okay, I'll do 365 days, 365 entries. An entry a day, every day, for a year. And I was doing this partly so people reading my blog would have something to read every day, and partly because I thought it would be fun and challenging, and it was. Now, I didn't call it a death march back then. I didn't do that till the second one. But it's an interesting thing to do because you have to write something every day, which is a challenge. Even if what you're writing is short, and I've done many entries that were less than 100 words. I've done some that were considerably more than 100 words. But the challenge was to do the Doclopedia entries, which by their very nature only go on with the same theme for you know X number of days. I mean, unless I'm doing the alphabet, and in which case the theme may be the alphabet, but the entry changes every time I do one. So A is different from B, is different from C. So that's, that's a challenge right there. So you find yourself coming up with different stuff every few days to write about, or even in the same theme, how to stick something in that theme. Because I've chosen themes many, many times based simply on an idea with no clue as to what I was going to write about with that idea. Um, Things like, it's in the bag, or, you know, 20 things you didn't know about, dot, dot, dot. You know, I had no clue what I was going to write about, but there you go. Sometimes you do. Sometimes I do things like, you know, bad axes. I knew I was going to be writing about different axes, probably magical. So I knew what I was going to do, but I had to come up with a different axe every day for five, six, seven days, whatever it was. Sometimes I do entries that take a lot longer. I've done Doclopedia entries that took a long time to do because I chose to do something like 
altered United States. Boom, 50 entries. Or the alphabet, which is about half that. So coming up with Doclopedia entries, a challenge, doing it every day for a year. And by the way, none of my death marches have ever taken less than a year. I always assign myself at least a year. Now, how do I do this? How do I write this stuff? Well, I sit down, I stare at what I've got for a theme, and something pops into my head. As I have stated many, many times over the decades, my brain is full of stuff, and the stuff falls out. Now, weird ideas pop into my head, interesting ideas pop into my head, uh, entire novels pop into my head, and I chuck whatever I've got out there, and I use it for Doclopedia entries. Sometimes I will you know, sit and stare at something for a long while before I get a good first entry. And I get the good first entry, and that leads me to thinking, okay, maybe this will work, maybe that will work, and I try them out. I very seldom remove an entry because I thought it sucked, but some will be shorter than others. So there's that challenge, and that's how I confront that. And then I just type it up, and there you go. This time around, in this death march, I'm doing something different. And about once a month or so, my seven entries are going to tell a complete story. Uh, the first one is a story about two characters, the California Kid and Spider. These guys were professional thieves. They're very good at it. There's a big story arc. And so that's one of the stories I'm doing. One of the other stories I have in mind is another story about Lulu, who I wrote about when I wrote Lulu Spills Her Purse. And that's just, you know, a sort of slapstick, catastrophic, uh, fun writing piece about a lady spills her purse and what do the various things come out of her purse end up doing. Well, they cause all sorts of mayhem. You can go read the story on a blog. It's called When Lulu Spilled Her Purse. So, this time around, yeah, the death march is going to be interesting because I'm not only doing stuff that I've thought up individually, but I'm doing stories that I want to put in in seven parts. Some will run a little longer than others. I don't think any of the parts I've done have run more than about 2,500 words. So, I think the first story, I think that ran about 6,000 words, something like that. But that should be up on the Patreon already, and it'll be coming to you people who read the blog uh, in a month or so. So there is the Docopedia Death March. That's why I'm doing it. That's how I do it. Um, some of the themes I use this year, in this next two years really, will be recycled themes, which I've done before. Strange bandanas, for instance, I've done four or five times before. Because I have a lot of bandanas, so I could do that hundreds of times. <laughs> Other themes I've used many times before are Tiny Folk, Wait, What? And My Family. So there'll be a lot of ones I've used before, but they're going to have new entries for that theme. There'll be brand new themes. And I hope you all enjoy it. And I hope if you enjoy reading it on the blog that you will Kick some money over to the Patreon and join us there and read everything a month in advance.
So that's commentary for this time, and we'll talk about something else next time. Okay, folks, thank you for listening today. I am very grateful that you do. If you have any suggestions, comments, or questions, I can be reached on Facebook, where I'm Doc Cross, on WordPress at the Dockerverse blog, via email at agentroscoe at gmail.com, via Anchor, if you listen there, you can send me a voicemail, and if you're listening on the Patreon page, go right ahead, type up a comment, and I'll hear about it within just a couple of minutes, because they'll text me. If you like to support me via Patreon and hear these podcasts about a month before they go up on Anchor, maybe a little more than a month, go to www.patreon.com forward slash doccross and you can sign up for as little as a buck a month or you can sign up for three bucks a month which lets you see the aforementioned Doctopedia Death March. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast or advertise on it, get in touch with me by any of the methods I just mentioned and we will work out some sort of a deal. Our music was, and I'm going to try and pronounce this again, Caipirinha in Hawaii by Carmen Maria and Edu Espinal off of the Free Music Archives. Ladies and gentlemen, this podcast and everything on it except the music is copyright 2022 by Doc Cross. I will see you all next time. Live long and prosper.